So today's stuff is Lam Chet, and uh, we pick up at the bottom of Lam Zainam Chet, um, and it's um, it's Tanan um, Hasam. It's about ten lines from the bottom, three lines after the Gemara begins after the Mishnah. Um, so we talk over there in Menachos about because the Mishnah mentions the waving of the lulav. And it speaks about waving it at different points in the Hallel, Hodu la Hashem at the beginning and at the end, and Ana Hashem Hoshiana, according to Rech Shamayana Hashem Hatzlichana. Tosus brought in a very beautiful explanation linking it to Psukim Dibi Hayamim, which speaks about the, uh, the um, uh, trees of the forest bursting out in song, and then it says the actual Psukim of Hodu la Hashem Kitov and Hoshienu Eloke Yishenu. So, seeing that that is being connected to the shaking of the lulav, like the trees bursting out in song, and then with the connection of the Hodu Hashem and the Ana Hashem Hoshiana. So that, and then there was also the question of exactly our practice, that it's not just the Hodu Hashem initially, but that the Shliach Tzibor does it with the Yomar Na Yisrael, Yomar Na Beis Aron, and then the Tzibor responds with Hodu Hashem. So Tosos also discussed exactly how that becomes our current practice of the waving of the Lulav during Hallel. So now the Gemara connects this idea of waving with another aspect of some of a waving. Let's take a look. Tanan Hasam, so we taught over there in Menachot. When you have on Shavuot the two loaves of bread that you would bring, the, uh, the new, of the newly cut wheat, and the two lambs that would be brought for that korban. Um, what do you do when you wave it? Because it says that it's waved, the loaves with the lambs. So you put the loaves on top of the lambs. Um and you put your hand underneath them. so you wave it and you bring it uh, front and back and up and down. So Shanaemar, as the verse says, um so Asher Hunaf Asher Huram that was waved and that was lifted up. Now that's not exactly a pasuk by um, by v'shtehalechem, but it is a pasuk about doing tnufa waving that you do um, in the Beit Hamikdash, and therefore um, we are assuming that it is the same type of a waving that is done here. Okay, so let's take a, and that's by the bread of the Miluim when the Kohanim were initiated into the Beit Hamikdash. So, um, so what does that mean? So Amar of Yochanan, so the idea of hunaf waving, he says, means bringing, um, bringing in and bringing out. Moli um, and that is to the one to whom the four winds belong to him, meaning for God's sake. So presumably, moli to bring out and bring in could mean like to put in front of you and then to pull back into you. It could also mean like to your right and to your left. Um, and since it mentions the four winds of, a, of, you know, the four directions, presumably it's both. It's bringing in and out and front and back. Um, um, and, um, where was it? Mala um, umorid, and then you bring up and down, so it's interesting, right, because he sent, a sent only Molichumeli, but it has four directions. The Mishnah said, um, what's the Mishnah says? Menif umolichumevi. So you wave it and Molichumeli. So in the, in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah that's quoted, Menif might be to the right and the left, and Molichumeli front and back. But there is clearly there, this sense of all four directions and up and down. Okay, that's Vasher Hunaf Vasher Huram. 
Um, now, the Ma'arava, so that's the waving of the lambs and the, and the bread. And Eretz Yisrael, Masnu Hachi, they taught this way. I'm Rabbi Chama Bar Ukla, I'm Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Chama. Now, Molich Humezi, you bring it up and bring it down, Kidei Letzer Ruchot Ra'ot. I'm sorry, you bring it, uh, you bring it front and back, and again, also probably to the side. Um, Kidei La'atzor Ruchot Ra'ot. In order to hold back, to prevent the bad winds. I don't know if anybody tried walking this morning. That was really oh, bad yeah. wind. Malu Morid, up and down, today La'atzor Tlalim Ra'im, to hold back the bad rains. It's quite interesting. It's not necessarily to bring good, but to hold back the bad, to ward off the bad. Now, um, this is all by the, um, by the Shehalechem. Uh, what is the direct connection to the Lulav? Um, we'll talk in a minute. Let's read a little bit more in the Gemara. This teaches you that the, even the remnants of the mitzvah, meaning the waving, because if you didn't do the waving, you're still Yotze, your korban. But it's a, an important part of bringing the korban, but it's not a, a necessary part. And therefore it's called the, 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 like the remnants of the mitzvah. So even the smaller, even those remnants of the mitzvah, they prevent bad things from happening because the whole point of the waving, according to this, is to stop the bad winds and the bad rain. The waving is a remnant of a mitzvah. And it holds back bad winds and bad rains. Now here is why it's being brought in. The same thing is belulav. Now, does he mean the same significance? Not necessarily. The direct application, if you look at Rafi, is that this is telling you how to do the waving. The waving is like you would do this waving, you know, to the four directions and then up and down. Ravacha bar Yaakov mantilei umaisilei. So Rav Yaakov bar Yaakov would, um, you know, bring it out and bring it in. That's like the molichumezi. So, okay, I mean, that's pretty much what Rava said, but presumably the point is not just would he do this, but he would say, Amar, when he would bring it out and he'd, in, he'd bring it in, he'd say, Dein gira be'ene desitna. This is like, uh, 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 you know, a, uh, a spear um, in, the, in the eyes of the Satan. So he'd bring it out, he'd like be poking, he's like, say, he's saying, I'm poking the eyes of the Satan. As he, you know, it protrudes it out. Uh, that's not you shouldn't be doing that you know you don't want to provoke the satan you don't want you don't want to say ah back, that's you satan then you'll, then, you'll, then you'll get him interested in you and it's actually going to make more problems rather than do anything good now it is interesting here a couple of things first of all you know the um, comparison to the Shehalechem, in addition to just sort of saying well that's what we mean you know where is this whole idea of not knowing coming from Right, where did we even get this idea that you do not know him by the world? It says, Ulekachtem Lachem. So you could say maybe Ulekachtem means like a vigorous taking. Is there? Take it and really seize it. You know, but it doesn't sound like that. The whole context of the Hallel and the waving of it in a religious context. So what the Gemara is doing is the Gemara is introducing a, uh, a model for this. You know, we're actually, we have this model of a waving that is done in a religious context. Um, and that's presumably what this is being modeled after. So again, that is significant because that is once again connecting the Arba Minim and the Lulav and the Esrog to the world of Korbanot, a point that we have made multiple times before, the way it's being made into something like a Korban. And here, it, even before you get to the symbolism, the whole idea that you do a waving, um, the Gemara never gives a source for it. Tosos again speaks about the, the leaves, of the, the trees of the forest bursting out in song, but again, being connected to an area where you actually do 
wave this object um, before God. Now it actually goes beyond that because if you think about it, and this is the point that Tosus makes, when you wave the Shteh HaLechem, what are you waving? You're waving the new grain. And you are, right? And you, and that is, uh, and, 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 and what is, and that's like what's new agriculturally at the time of Shavuot is the new grain. Well, what's new agriculturally at the time of Sukkot? It's the Arba Minin. This represents, right, all of the produce of the field that you're gathering in. So think about what we've just done. We've taken this agricultural aspect of the Chag and the same way we wave it on Shavuot, we're waving it on Sukkot. So it's not just a random model. There's a very strong power of the parallel. Um, and if you, so if you take a Lulav, he says like this, he says... Um, so maybe why do we mention Dafka the Shalechem? There's a lot of Tanufas that you do. Mm-hmm. You know what? Maybe all the other Tanufas are not done in the exact same way. Maybe it's only by the Shalechem that you do in all these directions. And also we apply it to Lulav. Mishum Darmina Per Kavdu Rosh Hashanah, the Gzar Din Nechtem Be Pesach Al Tuah Al Hatuah, the Al Teres Al Peres Eilam the Chag, the Chag Al Amayim. So every every holiday has a different Gzar Din, right? And on on Sukkot on on Shavuos on the fruit, and on Sukkot on the water. Ulchein Ani Anu Hashem Lulav Yesh Po Halacha Ve'Ava. In order to you know, in order to uh, be a type of a Tefillah for the rain. Okay, so Tosin says maybe there's a specifically only these are type of waving you only find by Shavuot, and we're applying it to Sukkot. And he makes this comparison about what is the purpose. If you see it as a type of a Yom Hadin, and you need a special prayer for you know, like the Gemara says, the rain and the wind, and what's going to affect you know the uh, what's going to affect you agriculturally. So there's a Yom Hadin aspect for Sukkot as well, which is the rain, uh, which, is, which is yeah, which is which is the rain. And we actually mentioned the bad rains. Maybe bad rains were a problem Shavuot time. Here we want good rains. So it's a type of a waving and a using, you know, and you use these lush things maybe to represent you know the need of rain and things that grow on rain, and you do it in that way. Um, so connecting it again in that way, I would say beyond the Yom Hadin aspect. You know, you could connect it also to just a sense of simcha, of gratitude. And again, I think that there's even a stronger comparison that you take the product of the new wheat on Shavuot and you wave it, and you take sort of the product of the field that's been drying, whatever, that represents, you know, the gathering in, and you wave that as well. So there really is, it's not just a technical point here, but there's actually a strong um, suggestion of this comparison, and again, connecting it to the uh, world of Korbanot. So that is one thing. The other thing I'll just mention is but the original statement of Rabbi Yochanan, you do it sort of to God, right, without sort of saying that it's a prayer for something, for the bad, holding back the bad rain, holding back the bad wind, etc. It's just for God. In a way, this also represents two symbolisms of the lulav. I think I might have mentioned this before. There's a midrash, again, it's not in the Gemara, it's probably later, so question exactly how early it is, but there's a midrash about Rabbi Akiva that he sees the Arba Minim representing God. <laughs> like everything is a Kodesh Baruch he also says there's only one of each of the meaning which might be connected so you know one idea is just it represents God it represents our connection to God we're holding and we're shaking and it somehow represents our connection to God whereas the other approach 
says it's a prayer to God. You use it to pray, you know. But that's the, the more general understanding is you take the Arba Minim as a way to pray for the good rains, right? And, you, and, uh, and it's a vehicle for this type of a prayer. And that also connects more to the second interpretation here, which sees it not about being directly about God, but about being a prayer for the uh, agricultural, for the weather, and, um, and so on. Um, the very, again, I don't know exactly what to do about the connection to poking out the eyes of the Satan, unless, again, it's connected, that maybe is connecting it less to the agricultural aspects of Sukkot, and maybe back to it being a culmination of the Yom Hadid. So we do have a mention in the Gemara of Satan, like the Gemara says, why do we sit and stand by the blowing of the shofar? You know, because to confuse the Satan. So the Gemara actually does have a heightened mention. The Gemara doesn't mention Satan too much. But it has a heightened mention of it around the Yomim Norayim. So speaking about this, poking out the eyes of the Satan might be sort of situating this more the type of a culmination of the, you know, Aseris Yimei Tshuva and the Yimei Hadin. So interesting to see the three different symbolisms that come up and also the comparison to the world of Korbanot and the comparison to, um, to uh, Shavuot. The last thing I'll just say is that Tosros has a whole question about how do you, you know, the Rishalmi that says you do it three times and how do you count the three? You say out is one and in is two, or out and in is one. You out and in and out and in three times, right? So that's one question he asks if you have to do it three. And then another thing which he doesn't ask, but that gets asked is, you know, some people do it like out and do three times over here, and this three times here, and then three times here, as opposed to doing this three times. How do you count the three times? Anyway, Argamar doesn't say three times, but it does come up in the Ushami, and then there becomes all these different questions of how exactly you do the counting. Okay. So that was a very fascinating in terms of where the uh, uh, comparing it to that, which might be the source of the idea of shaking. Maybe it's the verse that Tozel quotes, Azumanu Afayar, but where do we get this idea from? And then all these different possible symbolisms and connections to Shavuot. Now we take a look at the next Mishnah, uh, because again, it's quite fascinating, the point I want to get back to, that it's mentioning all this shaking and during Hallel, and it didn't start with the simple idea of just taking the Lulav, and that's the mitzvah. You make the bracha, you take the Lulav. So let's take a look at this next Mishnah, which brings us into that. So it says, Somebody who came uh, from back from a journey, and he didn't have a Lulav, he didn't travel, he didn't have a traveling Lulav, what do you do? Litol, he didn't have a lulav to take when he was traveling. When he gets into his house, take it on the table. It's a funny thing, on the table, what does that mean? The Gemara is going to say it means even interrupt the meal to take it. Okay, but there's also a Chiddush before you get to the idea of interrupt a meal. There seems to be a Chiddush here that you take it in the house as opposed to taking it where? Meaning where would be the natural place to take it. I think there's in the, a... In the Beit Knesset. In the Beit Knesset when you're doing the howl out and doing the shaking. Right. I think that is implied that it's the first introduction to taking the lulav, it talks about the shaking of it in Hallel, which clearly means in the show. So the Chiddush here, before you get to the Chiddush of you interrupt your meal, the first Chiddush is, you didn't take it in Shul, it's okay, take it at home. Which also is important, because a lot of people, they make the bracha, they take it at home, and then they bring it to Shul. And how much is there an idea of taking it independent of the idea of the non-newing? I want to get back to that, but let's first finish reading this. Maybe you should be davening halal at home by sunrise. Uh, okay. So, now, um, lo nato shacharit, if you didn't take it in the morning, yitol you can even take it in the afternoon, tekoliam kasher lulav, even though you normally take it in the morning when you say shacharit or when you say halal, you can really take it the whole day. 
Okay, so the point of this, simple point of this mission seems to be, even if you didn't do it the right time, in the morning, or the right context, in Shul and in Hallel, you can still take it independent of that time and context, as long as you do it sometime during the day. So the Gemara says the following, um, Amarta notes all Shulchano, you say, take it on your table. Lemeimra demafsik, that sounds like you interrupt your meal. I'll ask you on this, there's a Mishnah by davening Mincha that it says um, in Shabbos that you should not start certain activities, go and getting a haircut and other types of things, or sitting down for a meal before davening Mincha, but if you did, you don't interrupt your meal and you don't have to get up from the barbers in order to daven if you actually started it. So why there do you not have to interrupt? And here you do have to interrupt. So, I'm a Rav Lokash. It's not difficult. You don't have to interrupt if there's a time in the day to still get it done. That's the Mishnah by here. Here, when we say interrupt your meal, we mean if you're afraid that by the time you finish your meal, it will already be night and you'll, and you'll run out of time. That's when you do have to interrupt. Okay, that's reasonable. I'm a Rav, says Rav. My Kusha. I didn't understand the question to begin with. When it says don't interrupt, by the dot for today Avin Mincha. That's because Davin Mincha is rabbinic, right? The, 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 I mean, maybe there's an idea to Davin once a day, the Oraisa, but it's certainly not the specific text of Chazal, it's certainly not specifically Mincha, Shachrish Mincha, and Mariv. That's clearly rabbinic. So, that, therefore, you don't interrupt if you already started something to do a, a rabbinic mitzvah. Um, but the taking a lulav, that's a biblical mitzvah. So, I donn't even understand what bothered you, why you thought it was a question. So Elam Arava, so Rav says, no, Ikashya Hakasha. If there was a question, a problem that needed to be answered by distinguishing whether there's time of the day or not time of the day, it, this, is the, this was how the question was framed. That the Mishnah first says, First says, when you, you know, take it on your table means, So the first implication of the Mishnah is, interrupt your meal. The harder turning, and then the Mishnah says, Lo If you didn't take it in the morning, take it in the afternoon. So why didn't you take it in the morning? You were supposed to interrupt your meal. I'm a lomopsic. So it sounds like you don't interrupt your meal. So I'm a Rav Safra. So that, for that, Rav Safra said, When you didn't take it in the morning, you didn't interrupt your morning meal because there was time in the day. When the other part, when the first part of the mission said interrupt your meal, that was like in, you're eating in the afternoon and there won't be time in the day. And that's the difference. Okay, so that's the problem he was coming to answer, that it sounded like from the two parts of the Mishnah, a, 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 an implicit difference whether you would or wouldn't interrupt your meal. Amr Abzeira says, Rebzeira, my kusha, that couldn't have been the problem. Yoma mitzvah last because the simple way to read the Mishnah is, you should interrupt your meal to take it, take it all your shulchan, you should. But you know what, guess what, not everybody always does what they're supposed to do. So if you didn't do what you were supposed to do and you didn't interrupt your meal, below pasik, if you didn't interrupt, you can even take it in the afternoon, the whole day is kosher. So the Mishnah is not a problem. The Mishnah just means you should interrupt your meal. It doesn't tell you to do what, if, what happens if you don't. And the fact that by mincha, you don't interrupt to say mincha, is because that's a durabanan. So we have no problems. What do you need to answer? Durabanans you don't. The arises you do. Um, end of story. So the Gemara says, Elamar of Zerah Laolam Kidakamina Mekar. No, actually, there was a problem comparing the Mincha case, which is Drabanan, to the Lulav case. That, that by Lulav you interrupt them, by Mincha you don't. Why is that a problem? Again, there's a difference of Zerah Laisa Drabanan. Doesn't that explain the difference? Lulav is biblical, you interrupt. Mincha is Drabanan, you don't. No! 
We're talking about Yom Tov Sheni. Now that again is a phrase that's been used multiple times and means Cholomoe. Does not mean the Yom Tov Sheni of Chutzlaret. How do I know it? A, because of the next line the Gemara is going to say. It's Yom Tov Sheni, which is rabbinic. Um, and therefore there is a, a problem. This is rabbinic and you don't, and you do interrupt and Mincha you don't interrupt. So Dikanami, and I'll prove to you by a close read of the Mishnah that we're talking about Yantar Shani. How do you know? Nikitani, Mishaba Baderech. It says you came back from a journey. What would you be doing traveling on a journey on Yantif? The Rishon, if it was the first day Yantav Mishari, you can't be traveling on a journey. On a journey. Now this Gemara makes it very clear that Yantar Shani means Cholamoe. Doesn't mean the second day of Yantav. Because it says, you wouldn't be traveling if it was Yantav. Well, guess what? You wouldn't be traveling if it was Yantav Shani of Chutzlaret either. Okay? Besides which, that the Mishnah isn't talking about Chutzlaret. So if we want to say the Mishnah is referring to Yantav Shani, right, we mean Cholamoah. Okay? We don't mean second day Yantav. And therefore, it's rabbinic. Therefore, you could be traveling. And therefore, we've got our problem. Why is it that the Mishnah, which is talking about Cholamoah, you interrupt in order to make a, in, in order to, you interrupt your meal to do a rabbinic mitzvah. And by Mincha, you don't interrupt in order to do a rabbinic mitzvah. So what is the difference? And the difference is whether there's time to do it or not time to do it. If there will be time to do it, you interrupt. You don't interrupt. That's the case by Mincha. If you're afraid there won't be time to do it, you do interrupt. This then becomes the bottom line principle. By rabbinic mitzvot, you're not supposed to start certain activities. You started the activity. Do you have to interrupt it? And the answer is, it matters whether there will be time left to do it or not. If there will be time, you do interrupt. If there will be time, you don't interrupt. If there won't be time, you do interrupt. By biblical mitzvot, then, presumably, regardless of whether, even if there will be time, if you're, it doesn't matter. Stop the activity you're doing to do the biblical mitzvah, to say the Shema, to take the lulav on the first day, and so on. Now, even there, there's a question about what, what would be if, like, you have a fixed time to do it afterwards, right? So I normally make sure that I say the Shema, like, I davened early, I didn't say, or let's even say, forget that. I, I daven, I go to a 10 o'clock Myrif where I'm going to say the Shema. So does that mean that as soon as the Zman Kriya Shema comes about, I have to interrupt what I'm doing and saying it? No, you know, there's a difference when you have like a fixed time to do it. But if basically you should have done it earlier and you didn't, and you're now in the middle of another activity, so it's already, a, as it were, a pending thing that you should have done, and now you started something else, by a biblical mitzvah you interrupt it in order to, even if there will be time, by a rabbinic mitzvah it depends whether there will or won't be time. And that's sort of the conclusion of that. So again, the Gemara hyper-focuses on this issue of whether there will or won't be time, but the bigger chiddish, I think, or the bigger point in the context here is, the assumption you should be making it in the you should be doing it in the morning and you should be doing it um, you should be doing it in the morning and you should be doing it um, during Hallel and that is the classic time um, to be doing it okay and then the next Mishnah is going to even turn to resuming to the discussion of Hallel because if you look at the next Mishnah even without a whole point of Lulav if a slave or a woman or a minor would be reciting for you the Hallel you respond and the whole next discussion is going to get to Hallel which we'll obviously get to in a minute but the point here I want to make is talk about Hallel, waving during Hallel. Oh, by the way, if you didn't do it at the right time and you didn't do it in the you know, right place and you didn't do it in Hallel, you can even take Lulav without Hallel. Let's get back to talking about Hallel. 
So it's very clear that the primary locus of taking of the lulav is during halal. And again, not just a statement of, oh, first you make the bracha and you shake it. And by the way, you also do it. No, it really sounds like the whole idea, the whole context of doing it is with the halal in the show. So take a look. That's a very important point. And you take a look at the end of this Avtosos. Today, last, or, oh, I'm sorry, the end of the Tosos, Bahudu Hashem Chilav Sof, back on Lama Zayin Amad Beth. And Tosos says this is a very important issue. Um, he says like this. Um, that's the end of the first middle five lines of the Tosos. The last word of that line is, Ubishas Bracha, Lo Matsinu in Chayev Lenanea, Betchilas Nesila. When you make the Bracha, right, do you have to then, here he's right now assuming you make the Bracha not right before Hallel. You make the bracha, do you just hold the lulav, or do you shake it when you make the bra- after you make the bracha? That it says, when are you obligated in lulav, when you know how to shake it? So the, meaning, meaning a minor, that you start minors doing mitzvot when they're able to do the act of a mitzvah. And interestingly, what does it define as the age which a minor starts, you start educating him to do the mitzvah? When he's able to shake it, not when he's able to take it. So you see the idea of shaking is central to the concept of what the act of the mitzvah is. So therefore, Tosa says, so therefore when you make the bracha, you should have to shake it because that defines when you start educating minors to do it. Clearly, that's a central part of the act. Now, everybody, again, you would be yotze without it, but even though you technically would be Yotzeh without it, it is central, and therefore, Tosa says, you would do it after you make the bracha. Um, now, Tosa makes this other important point, though, but this also supports an idea, Tosa says, that shaking can be significant without the halal. Because it doesn't say you start teaching a minor to, shake, to, to take the lulav when he's able to shake it and say halal. You just say when he's able to shake it. So presumably, you can do, there's an A, shaking is central to the mitzvah, but B, can exist independent of halal. And therefore that leads to the possibility that you make the brach at home and you shake it, even though it's not in the context of shaking it, of, you know, of shaking it during halal. So there's really three possibilities. The entire thing is just holding on to it, you know, which Bidyevit is true, but, but that's totally even okay for making the bracha. That's not true. Because we definitely see shaking as playing a central role. But is it the shaking during halal or not? Tosus tries to prove out from the cotton case that you can have the shaking without the halal. That's against the I'm not exactly sure that's such a proof, because the cotton can be in show when everybody else is saying halal. He could still do it in the context of halal. We're going to enter into a whole discussion of shomea to one. Listening to the halal is like saying it. So to me, just because he doesn't know how to say halal doesn't mean that it, the shaking exists outside of that context. Okay? So anyway, um, um, but there he has one more proof. Only the time of brachos, the sof tshilas hashachar, hiktim latzitz laderech. If you have to go out to the journey early, mivim lo shofar v'tokeya lulav v'minanea megillah v'koreba mashma demananea below halal. It says you had to leave and you couldn't wait for davening. You had to leave before shachris. You make the bracha, you shake the lulav, and you go on your journey and you say halal when you say it. So again, nobody is denying that. If you don't have a choice, you're Yotze. That's like our Mishnah. You came home and you missed Hallel and Shul and you take it at home. But the question is, even if that's okay, B'diyevet, is the idea of shaking, number one, central to the taking of the Lulav? The basic answer is yes. One good evidence is that's how it's originally framed in the Mishnah. The other good evidence is, is that the minor... Um, you know, obligation only starts when he's able to do that, number one. And number two, which t- shaking in Hallel or independent of Hallel? 
Well, it does, you know, it seems that the str- I would say the strong evidence is against, it's not what Tosus is saying, is that the shaking is all being placed in the context of Hallel. Even a minor could do it in Shul when they're saying Hallel. The fact that it's possible if you don't have a choice that you do it separate is uh, not a proof that that's really the Lechatchila. So the difference, the, the implications of this are twofold. Number one is, if you do take it outside and make the bracha before Shul, you don't just hold it, you shake it, which is what everybody does. But the other question is, if you agree to Tosis's conclusion, then maybe you take it before going to show. And a lot of people do that. They say, like, Zvizin Maktimin Lemitzvah. Let's do it first thing in the morning. First chance that we get. I specifically do not do that, and most people you see don't do that because they all make the bracha, you know, in Shul, and most people are taking it out and making the bracha then, and that is because the stronger evidence is that certainly as the best lichachila, it's not, it's not just, it's shaking in the context of Hallel, and that's not just what you do after you've done the mitzvah, but that is the way you do the mitzvah. You know, the taking of the lulav is the taking and the shaking during Hallel. It's not, the taking was two hours ago, now we also shake it. No, the basic idea of the mitzvah is the shaking in this context, and that certainly is what is more, I would say, suggested by the sources, and that's why make, waiting to do the mitzvah antonyms the bracha. So that's all very powerful, especially if you consider the idea that shaking isn't mentioned anywhere in the Torah, just as l'kach and l'chem, and how when we've created this whole hollow context, again, maybe because of this whole idea of but really sort of broadening the symbolism. What's the lulav about? So I do want to say one other thing about that, which is, the Pasuk is, and the end of the Pasuk is, and the idea of Simcha, right, the whole idea of Simcha's base, Hashoeva, and Simcha connected to this, and that's Tosus quoting that Pasuk of Ad Yumanin Yar, the trees burst out in song, it's bringing the joy of the year, and you know, in the context of the agricultural, the har- bringing in of all of the harvest and everything that's been dry, all of the food and so on, and bringing that joy and expressing that joy to God and using these symbols as the way of expressing that joy. So that really ties into Hallel, not some prayer to prevent bad rain or not some idea of we're going to be judged about water. The Hallel doesn't fit that context so much. The Hallel fits the context of the Az Yiranu Asayar, the Tosus quotes, and the Smachtem Lishnei Hashem Elokeichem. So again, quite powerful that this becomes a central idea of the act of the mitzvah if you consider the technical Sukim in the Torah, don't speak about this. Okay, so that's really a very important issue about the nature of the idea of uh, the shaking of the lulav. Okay, so now we go to the Mishnah, which is now, as I mentioned, going to focus us on the idea of Hallel. If a slave or a woman or a minor would recite for you, uh, meaning it was a word-for-word recital, they would say, uh, you say, you know, you say, so, okay, that can work because you don't know it, so they have to be re- reciting for you word for word. But, Mashain Omrin, you recite after them what they're saying. The Tabalo Meira, a curse should fall upon you. Now, why should a curse fall upon you? So, Rashi says, because it displays your ignorance, right? I mean, why, why aren't you saying it yourself? Why do you need somebody to recite for you? Obviously, because you're ignorant, and therefore that's a real problem that you don't know how to recite the Halal yourself. Tosa says, no, it can't just be your ignorance because then it wouldn't matter whether it was a woman minor doing it or whether it was an um, adult male doing it. Either way, you're ignorant. Um, Tosa says, no, actually the problem is is that you're doing it, you know, 
if you are already ignorant and not able to do it, there's a way you do it. Well, we'll see. Let's finish reading the Mishnah, okay? And then I'll sort of go back and unpack that a little bit more. Um, if the, an adult was reading for you, then you don't have to repeat word for word. Hallelujah. So basically, is what we're going to see in a minute is the way they would do the recitation in the show um, would be the following. And it's a question whether this would be what everybody would do or whether it would only be what, um, what uh, people who were not able to say it themselves would do. But basically, it was a... I mean, don't, I hate this, right? I, I hate this, but never do this. Like, whenever there's something responsive for Ashkenazim, we always have to make sure that we ourselves are saying it. And then we answer the Chazan. We can't actually just say half of it. Maybe because, I don't know, something about maybe because it's printed in the sitter or something. Anyway, but very often in Sephardi shows, when they have responsive things, you do want your part and the Chazan does his part. He says this, and then you respond. He says that, whoever responds, you don't have to say everything. So apparently, the way it originally was in terms of the Hallel, you know, the Chazan would say, Hallelujah. And everybody would say, Hallelujah. Then he'd say, Hallelujah, Dei Hashem. And everybody would say, Hallelujah. And then he'd say, Hallelujah, Shem Hashem. And everybody would say, Hallelujah. And then he'd say, Yehei Shem Hashem of Arach. And everybody would say, Hallelujah. That would be actually a pretty exciting event to yeah. be at, wouldn't it? So that's how. So you can even imagine that you do that with Chachila. Even if you know how to do it, say the word. Why do you have to say the word? This is the way you say the Hallel. There's a reader and a response. Okay? Uh, so, but it sounds like it's going to sound in the Gemara that this is what you would do if you didn't know what to say. You would just respond, Hallelujah. Otherwise, you would actually say the text itself. But not so clear from the Mishnah. On the Mishnah, it might be that this is the standard way it would be done. The, you know, the adult would say it. The adult, the uh, the um, the um, you know, the obligated person, the shliach tzibur would say it, and you would say Hallelujah at the various phrases. Okay, Makam Shanad Lichfo Yichfo. Places where they sort of double up certain psukim, like Odich Hashem Kianisani, which we repeat psukim. If that's the minute to repeat certain psukim, you repeat it. Lifshot. If the minute is to just say it straight without doubling it, you shot. Levarech. If there's a minute to break, make a bracha, Yivarech. You make a bracha. Hakok Minang Menina. Everything goes like the practice of the place. There are different practices of exactly how to say the Hallel. All right, there's not one rule you follow your different practices, very nice little, you know, sort of um, embracing of a diversity of practice. So let's go back to the issue of that you don't, that it's not an adult male who's doing the leading, but it's a minor or a woman. So Rashi says the problem is it displays your ignorance. So it says, I don't understand. You're ignorant, even if an adult male is doing it, you're ignorant. And the answer might be not necessarily. Because if an adult male is doing it and you're saying hallelujah, you're not, you might be ignorant, but you're not displaying your ignorance. Maybe that's just how you do it. One guy reads and everybody says hallelujah. The problem is, is that if the leader is not somebody obligated in hallel, right, because a woman in minor, you know, is not obligated in hallel, because it's like time down mitzvah and so on, I mean, it's only rabbinic, but whatever, then you are displaying your ignorance, because then you can't do the answering hallelujah since it's not an official sort of obligated way of saying it, you know, where they, each one is doing their part, then really they're just feeding you the lines, and it more is displaying your ignorance. So that really seems to be uh, the, uh, the idea here. Although, again, as I said, Tosa says, Tosa feels, no, even if an adult male is leading it, you know, um, if you know what to say, you should say it. So, you know, you'll be displaying your ignorance either way. And Tosa, therefore, um, just uh, uh, focuses on the idea that you're using the agency and relying on somebody who's not obligated, and that just, like, looks bad. Now, this is very relevant because of two issues. Number one is a hypothetical question about 
like nowadays, could a woman leave hollow? You know, I mean, I'm not suggesting whatever. I'm taking this out of any political context. Let's just talk about it as a pure hypothetical halakhic question. So our hollow is different because our hollow is everybody reads from the sitter, says it for themselves. There's no responsiveness. Nobody is feeding you the lines. So whatever the issues here are, displaying your ignorance doesn't apply, being obligated and being motzi people, it's not the same reality. Everybody's being motzi themselves. Is there any halachic status to the person leading the halal? Although we do have one section where there is a responsiveness that is going on. So that's like an interesting question, how to plug in our current realities of saying halal to the assumption here that you need an obligated person to be saying it and to be leading it. You know, so that's sort of like one issue. The other reason it's very important is because of the question of this whole idea of tavo me'era. The role of having a woman play a role is that somehow, now again, in a very male-oriented society, you know, in a patriarchal society, you know, the sense that, you know, what does it mean for a man to be ignorant and a woman to be educated was seen as something, you know, deeply problematic. You know, A, that you shouldn't be ignorant, and B, particularly a woman who in those societies was normally the ones that weren't educated and she knows more than you, and that's sort of where those problems arise. And for some, that ties into statements about, in the Gemara, like that, you know, a woman in theory could get an aliyah, but she shouldn't because of Kavad HaTzibor, also sort of connecting it to these, possibly to what's going on here, about an issue of demonstrating ignorance and particularly men being ignorant contrasted to women and what those types of things, you know, again, and, you know, what that would mean in that type of a society. So this issue about the Tavo Me'era, the appropriateness of this type of thing, whether the sense that it's inappropriate in general for a woman to be playing this role or for you specifically to be relying, particularly in a case where it's displaying your ignorance, it can be very relevant to those discussions. And given that we're almost on Purim, look at the last line of Tosos, because uh, the Tosos, the Emes Amrus, look at what Tosos says. He says, um, he says like this, Inami, Mishum Dirabim, so he, he this, I don't want to get into the whole discussion, but he says, maybe to have a woman, sort of, it's about leading Berchas HaMazon, even if she is obligated, maybe she shouldn't be leading Berchas HaMazon, in like, uh, um, you know, where there's a lot of people. Mishum Dirabim, Zila Buhum it's a disrespectful, for a woman to be leading Berchus Hamazon in the Rabin, okay? The Hare, he says that to explain an, a, a discussion he had before. The Megillah, women are obligated in the Megillah, and the Hilchus Gedola says, that a woman can't be read for men. So, why not? They're equally obligated. So, other Tosasim try to explain it based on this idea that maybe their level of obligation is different. Maybe men are obligated to read the Megillah and women are only obligated to listen to the Megillah. But this Tosas seems to make it a purely sort of sociological or appropriateness question. Is it appropriate for a woman, even with the same level of obligation, to be being motzi men? Okay, so just very relevant for like a lot of discussions that are going on today. How much is this about demonstrating ignorance and that's the problem? How much is there a sensitivity, you know, particularly in those types of societies for women to be playing certain roles and seen, being seen as appropriate or not appropriate? All right, so that's some of the issues around the, the whole point here about the uh, women in the mission. Yes. Question. The mission is implying the blessing uh Hollow is a minha. We'll get to it in the Gemara. Oh, okay. okay, let's take a look. Tadarabanan. So, 
We talked. The Emes Amru, in truth, we said, Ben Mivarech Aviv, Evid Mivarech Rabo. Now, this is about Birchus Hamazon, that a son can make a bracha for his father, and underage can make one for an adult, Birchus um, Hamazon, or a slave for the master, even though they're not obligated. The Isha Mivarechus Labala, and a woman for her husband. The question whether women are obligated in Birchus Hamazon or not um, is the whole debate in the Gemara and Brachos. But at least the first two clearly are not obligated and they could be motzi. Nevertheless, you should be cursed. Okay? A curse should come. Now again, why? Same type of a question. So here you could say that it's simply because they have different levels of obligation. Like if a slave or, I mean, the question is, are women obligated? But let's say a minor, a minor who is, who is only rabbinically obligated, you're biblically obligated, so that's problematic. And the problematics there are because of different levels of obligation. The question, of course, is, is that if they are different levels of obligation, why could the woman be motzi the man? You normally can't be motzi somebody unless you have the same level of obligation. So the Gemara there deals with it, and it might be a case of the following, right? It could be, for example, minors are always only rabbinically obligated. Um, as an adult, I'm, obli- I'm obligated biblically to do Birchus Muslim, but only when I eat, biblically, only when I eat my fill. If I just have a kezayis, my obligation is only rabbinic. So it could be, here's the scenario. My kid ate his fill, I only ate a kezayis, so he's rabbinic, I'm rabbinic, but from different perspectives, and therefore maybe he could be motzi me. Okay, but nevertheless, it would be inappropriate because even if technically we now have the same obligation, I still fundamentally am a person that is in the biblical category of obligation, and he's a person that's not in the biblical category. So anyway, here you have a similar issue of curse should come to you if you do this, but again, the question is why? Is it because of a different level of obligation? And that's the reason, and that's the problem? Or is there a problem that even if it's the same level of obligation, there's this sense of inappropriateness? You should be doing it yourself. You know, you shouldn't be having women and children and slaves, you know, involved in the process. And again, that raises that question. Where, where exactly does the problem lie here? Okay, now the Gemara says like this. Amar Rava, says Rava. Hilchasa Gvirta, um, many important halachas, you can infer from the current contemporary practice of Hala. Okay? In the time of Rava, the practice of Hala was not like it was in the Mishnah which is okay, because we said that anyway, the mission was, you know, there were different minhagim, so the contemporary practice was not like it, but based on what we do in our current practice, as Rava, you can infer, we left, we have certain things, you know, that we, that were sort of maintained in the current practice to signal different aspects of the halachas of halal. So let's take a look. The basic idea is the following. The Mishnah lays out a concept of people either don't know or either way either way aren't saying the hollow themselves. The p- person is leading it and they're responding hallelujah. Leading it, he says the words, a few words, hallelujah, a few <coughs> words, hallelujah. Rav is talking about a practice where pretty much people were educated or whatever, or the practice shifted and mostly people said all the words themselves. But nevertheless, there were some um, vestiges of the earlier practice that signaled some basic at- halachas of hollow. Let's take a look. Okay, so he says like this. Who omer hallelujah? The hein omim hallelujah. When it starts, right, the beginning of hallelujah. So the Khan says hallelujah. And everybody says hallelujah. 
So Mikan, so even though the rest of Halal they're going to say themselves, here they respond Hallelujah. So Mitzvah La'anos Hallelujah. That even if you know what you're saying and you're saying it all yourself, you should be responding Hallelujah at least at the beginning. When he says Hallelujah, you should say Hallelujah. Okay. Who Omer Hallelujah Hashem? He says, you know, praise the servants of God should pray should praise. They don't mean Hallelujah. Now that's right. The very first parak of Hallel is right Hallelujah Hallelujah Dei Hashem. So you say he says Hallelujah, they say Hallelujah. He says Hallelujah Dei Hashem, they say Hallelujah, and then everybody goes on and just says it normal. So the first Hallelujah is to signal you that even if you know what you're doing, you have an initial opening of the Hallelujah with Hallelujah. What's the second one about? Since you could just keep on saying it yourself. So he says, uh, That's a vestige, or that was maintained to remind people that the halacha is that if you don't know how to say the whole halal, that you can just say hallelujah after every phrase, which was the point in the Mishnah. He says a phrase, you say hallelujah. So we maintain that at the very opening, even though now again the practice is everybody says the whole thing, we maintain that at the beginning of the halal to signal and to remind us that that, that, that was the way, that's the halacha. That if you need to, if you don't know what you're, if you don't know how to say it, you can just say hallelujah at the, at, you know, at each phrase and that'll be fine. Um, okay, who Omer Hodu Hashem? Now, when you get to the Hodu Hashem part, he says Hodu Hashem. The Hainomim Hodu Hashem, and then they say Hodu Hashem. So there's everybody until now after the first Hallelujahs have been saying it straight. But when you get to the Hodu Hashem, there is another responsiveness of Hodu Hashem, a response Hodu Hashem. Mikan Shemitzulanos Roshe Prakim. So you see that there's a mitzvah to even again it, to, to respond the opening of the chapters. Now, what does that mean? First of all, there are other prakim between the first Hallelujah and the Hodu Hashem. Right? If you take a look at the way we divide the Tehillim, I'll open it again. Right? You have right here Kufiyah Gimel is Hallelujah Hallelujah Dei Hashem, which is what we started with. Then Betzei Yisrael Mitzrayim. Then Lo Lanu Hashem. Then Ahavti Kishma Hashem. Then Halus Hashem Kogoyim. And then finally Hudu Hashem Kitov. So if it's a mitzvah lanos Rashi Prakim, there are a lot of Rashi Prakim here that you weren't responding to. So Tosa says, you know what? Tosa says maybe the, Tosa doesn't say maybe the the Goyim's division isn't our division because he didn't have the Goyim's division. But Tosa says maybe they understood that from the initial Hallelujah all the way until the Hudu Hashem was one parak. But they actually thought that, the, as opposed to us, that we have like five parakim of Tehillim, just as maybe Chazal understood it all to be one big parak. And therefore, the Hodula Hashem, right, is the next parak that you open up with. Um, now, what does it mean? Rashi says no. Rashi says, yeah, we could have done it here. We kept it in one place. But if you actually were doing the old way, you would do, you would do the Hodula You would open up each new parak with the, a beginning phrase. Now, what does it mean that you would open up each new par- you would mitzvah lanos rashi prachim? So Rashi says again, this is going back to the way that used to be that after every phrase you'd say hallelujah, hallelujah after every phrase. But to signal when you're starting a new parak, there there would be a moment of shift. So according to Rashi, let's assume that he had the division we have. So you'd be saying moshivi akeres abayis. Everyone would say hallelujah. Everyone would say hallelujah. Then you'd say b'tzeis yisrael mitzrayim. And now everybody says, Pateis Yisrael Mi Mitzrayim, to signal like we're moving on to the next parrot. But then you would say, Beit Yaakov Me'am Loez, and everybody would say, Hallelujah! Okay, that's what Rashi says. So, Mitzalanos Rashi Prakim just means when you shift to a new parak, you, you, the people, the response is different, to signal we're shifting to a new parak. Tosos 
suggest something different. Tosa says, no, the, when, you say hallelujah when you're in the first parak. But when you get to the second parak, which according to Tosa says, hodu Lashem kitov, so he says, hodu Lashem kitov, they say, hodu Lashem kitov. Kilo amchazdo, hodu Lashem kitov. Right? And then for that parak, everything that they're not saying hallelujah anymore. They're saying hodu Lashem kitov, which is actually great. So there are two great things to be responding, right? Either hallelujah or hodu Lashem kitov. So in the first Section the responsiveness is hallelujah. The response is hallelujah. In the second section, everybody is responding. I want to be at that hollow. That sounds like a yeah. really fun hollow. <laughs> so anyway, okay. So according so so according to Rashi, again, it just means for that opening phrase. But according to Tosus, it means no. The general responding phrase would be either the hallelujah until uh, for the whole first half and the hodu Hashem for the second half. But again, in Rava's time already, they weren't doing that. They were just doing. They were just doing these little vestiges to remind you that that was the actual original practice. Okay, so uh, where were we? Um, okay, Mitzvahanos Rashi Prakim. Itmar Nami was also taught. Amar Avchanan Bar Rava. Mitzvahanos Rashi Prakim. It's to respond to the beginning of the parent. Hu Omer Ana Shem Hoshiana. The Heino mean Ana Shem Hoshiana. So again, if now we're in time where there's very little of the responsive reading, we have to indicate what each part that's responsive is reminding us of. So why, what's the response that we do by the Ana Shem Hoshiana, which is in the middle of a parak? It's not Hallelujah. It's not Hodu Hashem. It's in the middle of a parak. Why are we doing that? Mikan to remind us of another thing. Shimhaya Katan Makrioso Oni Machrav Machu Omer to say that there's an actual, uh, there is a time where you actually just need to repeat word for word, not just at the beginning of a parak, not a constantly repeating phrase, but actually repeating word for word what you hear. What would be that, that case where you need somebody who's not obligated to be feeding you the lines, then you have to repeat word for word what you hear. So what about the repetition by the what's that reminding us of? So mitan shimbalichvo kofel to signal to us that you are allowed to repeat certain sukim. So we may maintain one pasuk that we repeat. So we maintain little vestiges to remind us of some of these broader practices, even though by Rav's time most of those broader practices had fallen by the wayside. Who omer baruch haba vehenomin b'shem Hashem. Now that's interesting because there's a place where they actually did not say certain words. They, he said baruch haba. They didn't say baruch haba. They said, he said the second half of the Pasuk was Shem Hashem. Now again, in the older times, everybody would respond, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. They wouldn't say the words. But this is not Hallelujah. This is not Hodu Hashem. All it is is, you begin a sentence and I end it. So what does that teach you? It teaches you that. You know, because Hallelujah could almost be like a type of an Amen. So it's one thing to say, if you make a bracha and I say, Amen, I'm Yotze. But let's say we said, you say, Baruch Hashem, and I said, Borei Piyayetz. That's a different thing. It's not me saying hallelujah, me saying amen. You're starting, I'm finishing. Okay, that teaches you a different halacha. What does that teach you? That teaches you, that if you hear something, it's like you said it. Okay? Because if you said, and I said amen, that doesn't tell you shomea kona. That says saying amen is like saying the bracha. If you say, Hodu Hashem Kitov, and I say, Hodu Hashem, and I keep on saying hallelujah, Hodu Hashem, that's like a type of an amen. Right? That's telling you one thing. But it's a very different thing to tell you that even if you begin and I end, that even I didn't say an amen, it's what you, when I heard the first half, it's like I said, I said it. 
And that's a very important halachic principle of Shomer Ka'ona. Now, I want to say something even just to technically understand the word. Normally, Shomer Ka'ona is translated as hearing something is like you said it. But that's not what the word Ona means. What does Ona mean? What does the word Ona mean? It doesn't mean to say something, or could mean, but it means to what? To answer. Right? What would the normal answer be if you heard something? What would the proper response be? In this context, what's the proper response when it's being done responsively? The Chazan says something, what do you say? Hallelujah. hallelujah. Okay, but let's say you didn't say hallelujah. You just heard it. Hearing is like doing the response you're supposed to do. That's what the technical terms from economy Rambam has. Let's say a case of a bracha. What's the proper response to a bracha? Amen. But if you didn't say amen, you're also Yosef. Because hearing it is like saying amen. And the Rambam even creates a hi- hierarchy. Rambam says the following. Ha'one amen, kimotzi bracha mipiv dami. If you say amen, it's like you verbally said the bracha. Because saying amen is sort of like saying ditto. Right? You know, so it's that, those words essentially have all the words of the bracha wrapped into it. Because you're saying like, me too. Okay? But he says, so, ame amen kimotzi bracha mipiv. The hashomea harezek ke'one. So, you know, so, so the best is to say Amen, but if you just heard it, it's as if you say Amen, but it's like one step down. You just the, heard the, the bracha? The bracha. Or you just heard someone else say Amen? No, well, that's an interesting question, but let's for now say the bracha. So you heard the bracha, you're supposed to be Ona, and if you're Ona and say Amen, or in this context, Hallelujah, it's like you said, it's actually, those words are like the words that are, are, are like the words you're supposed to say, because you actually said something which indicates that you assert, uh, you know, affirm what's being said. But even if you didn't say the answer, you just heard it, it's like you said the answer, and that counts. And this is the important halakhic principle, that hearing works, okay? But it's also important to appreciate the technical meaning of ke'one in a context where there would be another type of a response that we would be more expecting. And that's why it's positioned to hear. Saying hallelujah works, that's an one. That's saying and affirming what's being said. Saying the end of a bracha, you're not affirming what was said before, and you have to say just listening to it is like I was Yodzeh. Rashi, therefore, leads this into an important point. Rashi says, if you're in the middle of davening, and they're saying Kaddish or Kedusha, and you're in the middle of Shema and Shemonesh, and you can't interrupt, just stand silent and listen, and it's like you did the right response to Kaddish and Kedusha, etc. Toso says, no, because if we really say Shomer Ka'one and it's like you responded, then you've interrupted your, your, your Shema Shonesre. So don't mistake the idea that listening is like responding in a very literal way. We actually posted like Rashi that no, it counts that you're Yose, it's not, but it's not like you actually said it uh, in the sense of interrupting. Um, but this becomes very important. It's important for all these ideas. Like how do we Yose the Megillah? If there's a mitzvah to read it, I'm not reading it, somebody else is reading it. So this idea that listening is like you did it is a you know very important halachic principle. Let's just let's just read one more thing. Um, so Shbo Minei Rebbe Chiyabar Abba, the Rebbe Chiyabar Abba, Shamav Lo Ana Mahu. Let's say you heard without responding, which you know we've already addressed, but maybe he wasn't part of this earlier discussion. So Amalehu. So he said back to whoever the, they were, the people who asked from him. Chakimaya v'safraya, very fascinating way of responding. The wise people and the sofrim, which Rashi also says means like the the uh, teachers of children, the reishe ama, the leaders of the nation, the darshaya and the darshanim, the expounders. Amru, everybody has said shama v'lo ana yatsa, hearing without responding, you're also yotza. Just hearing also counts. 
It Marnami was also taught. I'm Reb Shimon Pazim, Reb Yosher Ben Levi. Mishum Gar Papara Minayin L'Shomer Kaona. How do you know that listening is like saying? Tachsiv Es Kodivei Hasefer Asher Kara Melech Yehuda. So all the words of the book. This is when they found a Sefer Torah in the base of Mikdash that the king, that Yosho, the king of Yehuda, had read. Did Yosho really read them? Shaman was the one who read them. Shaman read them. In front of the king. Because he heard it. It was like he said it. And by the way, this is important again for the Megillah idea. It's not just like he said it. It's like he read it. Mm-hmm. Right? So even though there's a mitzvah to read the Megillah, if somebody reads and you hear, it's not just like you said the words, it's like you read the words. So we see Shomer is Ka'ona. So the Gemara says, "V'diyoma baser de karinu shafan kar Yoshiyahu." How do you know? Maybe after shafan read them, Yoshio read them, even though it wasn't reported. Maybe he did read them. Amar Avaka by Yaakov lo sakadaitech. That doesn't make sense. Yechsev yan rach libavcha vatichna lefanai because your your heart was softened and you humbled yourself before me. I'm sorry, lisnei Hashem b'sham acha when you heard these things. B'sham acha lo bikar acha. You heard them, you didn't read them. And nevertheless, the verse describes it as if he read them, and this is the principle of Shomer Ka'ona. Two important points before we end. Number one, Tosa says our minog of Hallel is not even like Rava's. Right? We don't do Hallelujah and the Hallelujah at the beginning. So Tosa says, okay, but since the Gemara says it's all based on Minhagim anyway, the different Minhagim. So Rava had a different minog than the Mishnah. We have a different minog than Rava, and sort of acknowledging the different Minhagim that we have even different from the beginning of the Gemara. The other important question is, is that whether there is this idea of Shomer Ka'one, is there an idea of uh, that actually, you know, saying it is better than hearing it? Should I, you know, should I better read the Megillah myself rather than hear it? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes there's a particular mitzvah of doing it with Tibor, like reading the Megillah. So being part of the Tibor definitely outweighs. But let's say I'm going to your house, right? I don't know. This is what I do at my house. Would anybody like to make Kiddush? Or do you want to be, to be Motia? Yeah, yeah, you just be Motia. Okay, but every now and then somebody says, no, I'm going to make Kiddush myself. So I don't know why. I don't ask, whatever. But some people actually prefer that because they say when it's not about a Tibor mitzvah like Megillah, you know, obviously Megillah could be Yose when you're Piyachi, but there's an element of Bikshibor. But when it's fundamentally, it's a more private mitzvah, then better to do it yourself than to do it through hearing somebody else. Okay, so there is a, that question which the Gemara does not address, whether Shomer Ka'ona is as good as Ka'ona. But again, in the context of the Gemara, we're dealing very much with a communal experience of saying Halal. Right, and therefore clearly it's not, oh, I don't want to be Yosei Shomei Agon, I'm going to go off to myself. The whole idea is to be part of the Tzibor. But again, I also, also want to just take, you know, appreciate what the power is of doing this type of a responsive Hallel, you know, and really making it a complete communal Tzibor experience. You know, uh, it really feels like we're missing something. You know, we've turned it all into our private little recitals that we're all doing at the same time and the only bringing together is at the Hodu moment but thinking about sort of what you know what this experience was like I think is very powerful it makes us sort of realize something of what we're missing okay.